Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. From the opening notes of their 1972 self-titled classic to their bombastic multi-platinum gem, Fog Hat Live, to 2016 slide guitar soaked under the influence and ride on through their upcoming new album, Sonic Mojo, Fog Hat has always been about the music. Music played loud, music played live, and music played that makes you want to move. Today, we're joined by founding drummer of the multi-platinum rock band, Foghat, Roger Earl. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Music Buzz, Roger. Afternoon, or is it morning? <laughs> I get, I, I'm easily confused because, you know, we travel all over the place, and um, what day is it? No, no, I'm just Exactly, right? When you're on the road, it doesn't matter what time or what day, just where's the stage, where's the catering? Where's the bus? Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> you live in New York, right, Roger? Yeah, I'm out on Long Island on the North Shore, uh, next to Port Jefferson. It's uh it's a piece of heaven on earth. It's uh it's a big sandbar. It's been here a couple of million years and uh least tried to take it over, but we kicked him out. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> do you do you miss the, the old world at all? Uh only uh, I have family there, my oldest daughter and granddaughter. My brother and some cousins and nieces, uh, nephew. I miss them, but uh, no, this is home. I love this country. This is this is the land of music. This is where it all comes from. And in 
and to this day still influences the world as far as I'm concerned. Well, to the, to that point, when I first heard Foghat, I had no clue, honestly, until today when I saw that you guys were born in London, or at least you're born yeah, um, in England. I thought, holy, this, this, I always thought you guys were American. You, your music. As did I. It, well, I mean, I, I did know about Savoy Brown as I looked into it maybe 15 years ago or something and realized, oh, okay. You guys were from England. You know, it doesn't show in those first hits all the all the songs that I even your logo, your first Foghat logo, just felt like it came from L.A. It just did. <laughs> well, I grew up listening to American music, as did Lumsden Dave, original lead singer, and Rob Price, our guitar player. It was America is the land of music. This is where it comes from: the blues, jazz, bebop, rock and roll, country, gospel, uh, hillbilly. I mean, this is. And it's got that beautiful, like, melting know, pot. And melting. Pot. You didn't find yourself listening to like Bobby Elliott or Jim McCarty or Ringo or or yeah, um, I Charlie Watts. I um, I always admired as a drummer and the way he played with the Stones. Great drummer, I thought. He plays with a song. Um, Jim McCarty. I used to go and see the Yardbirds at the Marquee. Uh, and you know he had that you know when they do their rave ups and it'd be everything. I mean, but at the time I would struggle to do left and right hand playing the same thing as fast as he that. had some chops at that for sure. And uh, I was there one night, and uh, there's Jimmy Page. He was playing bass. Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck on stage for the Yardbirds. That was like it was like whoa. Actually, it was a great time to be growing up in London. There was a lot going on. Bands, it was it was great. And I would go, I've been going up there since I was like 13 years old, going, you know, getting on the train like Friday night after school. Mm. Uh, it was uh, it was a great time to sort of be around music. It was a real growing time for, you know, British uh, music, I think. Yeah. Oh, no question. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, I, I always love it when I have a fellow drummer on here so we can gang up against these other two hooligans for a little bit and uh it, let's start uh, for myself and all the listeners here who are involved in the percussive arts with your approach to soloing i, I was watching your play three or four solos on youtube yesterday and i noticed a lot of things i noticed that you switch from match to traditional grip with ease and incorporate some pretty difficult crosshand work on the toms kind of a la buddy richish you know and towards the climax of a couple of them i noticed when you were playing you'd get your double bass thing going and i heard some ginger bakerish kind of independence going on uh it's very nice stuff i assume at some point you had a little bit of training can you talk about that and how your soloing has developed over the years i i took um i started taking drum lessons when i was 12 years old i told my dad um i wanted to get a motorbike and he said not going to help you with that, son, because I worked after school and on Saturday morning. So I had my own money. We weren't rich, but we never went hungry at home. And there was always music in our house. Um, so I said, then I want to want to get a drum kit, Dad. And he said, oh, all right. He knew um, a drum teacher that he, he'd known, a friend of his, a jazz drummer, I played with all the, a lot of American artists that came over to Europe. And I studied my uh buddy rich snare drum rudiments and um mm. i was i was terrible um <laughs> uh it was um 
I I was really interested in playing in a band, playing songs as opposed to being like the man, like Buddy Rich, who's just like incomparable. Yeah. I'm a human being. <laughs> exactly. Where, where did that desire Where did that desire come from? Everybody we talk to on our uh, our podcast says, "Yeah, I saw the Ed Sullivan show," and that's <laughs> that's all it took for a lot of young boys to say, "I want to be a drummer." What What made you want to do that? Um, there was always music in our house. My father played um, piano. He was uh, he was actually a uh, he worked on cars, bodywork on cars, but he played piano like part time. There was always music in the house. Big fans initially. Uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford, my mum and dad were huge fans of that. And uh, and my older brother Colin uh, was a Jerry Lee Lewis fan, as was my father. Uh, and um, and little Richard, without little Richard, I you know he was fantastic. Had an incredible drummer, Earl Palmer. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. I mean, that was like I'd sit down and listen to that stuff. Um, and in it, I mean, once I got my drums and stuff when I was fifteen, I would sit down and and play along to those records rather badly. I seem to recall. <laughs> uh, I, you know, my main thing was like playing with. Um, Chuck Berry's records and anything that came from Chess Records, for some somehow I could sort of manage manage that. Who was that? That was uh, Freddie Bilo, I think, did a lot of that stuff. And uh, and it, we always had a a swing. My teacher was was a you know a jazz drummer. That's that was his thing. So I understood right from the beginning. You know, if it ain't got that swing, it don't mean a thing. Even when you're playing like straight four four thing, it's still got to have that. You know, for me anyway. Yeah, it's got to have a swing. Yep. And and when I was 13, my father took me to see Jerry Lee Lewis in theater in Southwest London. And that was it. Uh, you know, I knew I wanted to play in, play in a rock and roll band. And then I think I bought, uh, and then I just read, I discovered Muddy Waters. Chuck Berry was already on the radar. Um my favorite album of all time probably was uh, Muddy Waters Live at Newport Festival. And I heard that and I went, uh, I, I couldn't play like, uh, what was the drummer? Um, Francis Clay, I think, played on that record. But I couldn't play like that. But I, I loved that way of drumming, that, that sort of like, it was, and that was the start. And then, I got I joined my first band when I was like sixteen or seventeen, somewhere around there, and I was off. I, I always had a passion for like rock and roll and blues. That was my drive, and I solos. I, actually, I haven't done any in recent times because I had some work done on my left shoulder. I ripped it up, and my this one as well. But uh, for me, it was always playing about playing the song. You know, the the singer, the lead guitar. And my best friend was always the bass player. Rhythm section, man. Yeah. They'd be nothing without us. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> what other drummers came into your life that you became aware of as you were developing your career as, as a drummer in a band? You finally got into a band and there's all so, there's so many drummers that, that emerged through the 60s and 70s and 80s and so on. Who really spoke to you? Who, who were the drummers that really impressed you? The first drummers I saw live, um, uh, probably Charlie Watts. I loved the way he played. I, I I went to see. I used to go and see him at Ilpai Island, um, the Marquee, the Ricky Tick, and 
whenever they were playing the, the Richmond club, uh, he played really well. And you could actually, you could always hear him. And then when they stopped playing clubs, it, you know, you couldn't hear anything anymore because they had oh. two box speaker cabinets either side of the theater. And like, it was like, hello. And girls screaming the whole time, right? I saw them playing to 350 people in Sunderland in 1964. And you're, you're exactly right. There were two columns on the stage. Um, I didn't know they were Vox, but it was useless because the kids were screaming. I couldn't hear a damn thing. As far as English bands, um, actually, my favorite band was Cyril Davis and the River Blues All-Stars. They played Thursday nights at the Marquee on Wardour Street. Originally, it was on Oxford Street. Then they moved it to Wardour Street. And that was the one band that I had to see every week. I would leave work early. I would do anything because once the line went round a certain bend and stopped, you knew you weren't getting in. I think it held about a thousand or twelve hundred people, something like that, if that. But it was uh, Cyril Davis and his rhythm and blues all stars. That was the band. The drummer was at was like you heard him. <clears throat> he was more of a <clears throat> I figured he was, you know, he'd learned like jazz and stuff, but he was a rock drummer in every sense of the word. Uh, really hard and played tight. Uh, as it go? Uh, tight is right. Uh, tight to the duck's ass, and that's water tight. Uh, Carlo Little, does that sound right? Carlo Little, I've heard that name. He was probably the, my favorite drummer because you heard everything. The first time I saw him, was I was like, I was only 12 or 13. He was playing in the Two Eyes Coffee Bar just with a, a guitar player and a singer. And he also, I saw him at uh, the Flam Flamingo Club in uh, Wardour Street. And uh, I didn't know his name at the time, but I found out, you know, afterwards. But he was a great drummer. As far as English drummers, that's who I, I like because you heard the bass drum, you heard the, the snare drum, and it was like... It was tight. It was great. What was your first kit? What was your first drum kit? Premier Black Pearl 14 inch snare drum uh, by six, I think, something like that. Um, oh. a 14 inch rack tom, 16 inch floor tom, and two cymbals, a Zildjian ride and a Zildjian crash, and uh, 14 inch hi hats. You, Keith Moon, and Jim McCarty all played Premier. Yeah, but Keith Moon's his toms were about that deep. Remember those weird little drums he played? They were really strange. Uh, yeah. Uh, a quick story. Yeah, I used to go and see The Who as well. They they were great. Except yeah. Roger, Roger had issues like trying to hear himself above the noise. Still does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, good, great singer though. Uh, he used to go see the uh, The Who at the Ealing Club. That was the one place that I used to see him. Um, yeah, it was a great time growing up in London, seeing all those bands. So, so take us back to, to 1971 when the band was formed. Can you tell us just about the formation of Foghat and also where the name came from? Because it's a funky name. Lonesome Dave and I left Savoy Brown. Tony Stevens, the bass player, was fired. I'm not sure why. Um, Dave and I decided to leave Savoy Brown. Uh, we talked to that they had a new deal coming up. This is in 19. 70, 71. And uh, 
at the time we weren't really getting paid much money the band was doing great they were getting paid between seven and 15 grand a night back in 1971 that was a lot of money we were getting a hundred dollars a week um didn't get any money for the five records that we played on didn't get any uh, writer's royalties that some of us wrote and not that that was a problem for us it was just playing was always you know typical musician just wanted to play we play for free wouldn't we and i actually i always had a good relationship with um uh, kim simmons and chris jordan the original singer in uh savoy brown but it was time for a change and um i remember talking to uh the manager the next morning harry simmons and dave and i said look you know we'll we're going to leave the band but We'll stay on for as long as Kim needs us. Um, and that didn't work out. He blackboard us in England, said we'd never work again. I don't know why, but uh, that didn't work out well for him either. The name Foghat came from a childhood. When Dave was like about 13 or 14, he was playing like a Scrabble game with his old, uh, younger brother, uh, John. And Dave made up the word Foghat, made it up. And his brother John said, that's not a word. And sibling, sibling rivalry as it will be, Dave eventually conquered that. Um, that's where it came from. We did, <laughs> we had a, number, had a number of different names, like 1971, 72. We really didn't, it's weird trying to pick a name. And we had a bunch of different names. Of course, we didn't really do any dates, but eventually, I remember driving up to London with Dave and Rob Price, our guitar player, and we still hadn't decided it. We were going to see the final artwork for the first album. And we, on the way there, we said, OK, <laughs> OK. And then the art, uh, Dave actually drew the uh, picture on the first album. And uh, I think, and also he did the, the logo as well. Dave was. He did the logo with the large G, the large G. No, that that came a lot later. Uh, oh. That was um, the in-house artists from uh, Warner Brothers Art Department. Good art department. I used to work with those guys. Great people. That was the first first time that was used was on the Energized album, and I instantly saw it as like the name was just all of a sudden it was like that's it. We keep that. There wasn't uh, any time we did uh, gigs or any kind of artwork. I would always point out the fact we needed our logo because that's what I did. I was a artist as well. So Are you really? I, yeah, that's what that's how I earned a living from like fifteen to twenty. Uh I was pretty good at it. I do um basic artwork, you know, for uh, it was an industrial design place, uh, you know, packaging design. And I would do the artwork for the printers. Occasionally I'd get a chance to do some uh actual artwork you know for packaging design and stuff like that were you an illustrator or a designer predominantly I, I did both actually so but mainly just the artwork you know for the printers you know package design uh, black you know lines and like tommy you came up with the the rock and the the dinner roll no i didn't do that um the, the, the idea was the original photo an idea. Our manager had sent our first album to Robert Downey, Robert Downey Sr. Actually, our, our manager was a big fan of the films that he wrote, uh, Pound, Reese's Palace, the sort of like art, sort of 
funny films. And um, he sent him uh, the first album and he said, could you design an album cover? And he sent us a black and white picture of a rock and a roll, which uh, the original one was really cool. I, lo- I liked it. I said, just use this. But our manager at the time said, no, no it's got to be in colour. I said, no, it's not. But, you know, managers as they are, they're in charge. You, have, you still have that art? The original? I, I never held, held on to any of that. I was far too busy playing in a rock and roll band. We, I mean, we worked every day. If we weren't playing somewhere, we were traveling somewhere. Uh, um, no, but uh, Dave actually often had uh, uh, a hand in any sort of artwork and stuff. I would point out what I thought was good or, or was an issue, but uh, Dave was um, had a really good eye for artwork and stuff like that. Did he come up with the the fisherman at the manhole? No, that was um, Nick Jameson, our uh, bass player on the Fall for the City album, and a longtime producer. He produced like three or four albums with us and the light. You worked with Dave Edmonds, I see too. Yeah, that was on the first album. But yeah. the fisherman is me fishing in the manhole cover. In uh, it was down in. Um, in the village in New York City one Sunday morning. And Nick Jameson came up with the idea because I fish, I fish, therefore I am. <laughs> when we were actually doing the Fall for the City album, um, you know, after I get drum tracks done, then they would have to try and figure out, you know, vocals and guitar parts and stuff like that. So I would go off fishing. So Nick re- knew about that. Nick Jameson was um, a really, really brilliant musician. He He's one of those horrible people that picks up an instrument he's never played before. Within 10 minutes, he's quite accomplished on it. And in a day or two or a week, and he becomes highly proficient on it. Hey, you hate people like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's us mere mortals have to struggle with one or maybe two. <laughs> so it's his idea. Cool concept. I'm always intrigued by, by the unexpected. You know, like anytime, you know, I've often thought about you know, if you told a band that you wanted to have two businessmen in black suits shaking hands in a Burbank back lot somewhere, and oh by oh by the way, one of them is on fire, the band might go, <laughs> the band might go. I don't, I don't get it. It's a stupid idea. Only until you realize what what the cover is. You know, well, looking over you guys' covers, I mean, there's been a lot of really creative ones over the years, and and obviously the logo i didn't even realize until that the logo wasn't used so it looks like on the first few records cuz that logo is so synonymous with the band obviously yeah, it's a sure. cool logo you know you talked a little bit about you know being you know too busy cuz you're in a band when i think about when i started in in the business i worked for sunshine promotions based out of indianapolis and i remember in the hallways you know hanging around the sunshine office all the old posters and stuff and i can't tell you the number of posters that had fog hat on them whether it was some festival at bush stadium or opening for this band or that band you guys were like it seemed like it was almost like an internal joke like of course fog hats on that poster but it seemed like you guys like were talk a little bit about the work ethic from the early 70s up until today i mean you guys you guys are still out there playing shows you know, talk a little bit about just, you know, that. I mean, that's, it's quite the feat that you guys have uh, have accomplished over these many decades. For us, it was it was always about the music, especially myself and Dave, that lonesome Dave. He was great to play with. Um, when it, Even when he was ill later on in life, he'd get on stage, he would give it 110%. He was, he was fairly quiet off stage. He was, he was uh, a walking encyclopedia of all things 
rock and roll, blues and jazz. And on stage, he would just light up and he, and, and he was always, and when you go on stage with somebody that's that focused on performing and like making it work and playing, we play anywhere. On the first tour we came over here, 1972, went into three. I think we were here for nearly 13 months. Wife and kid to keep, that didn't work very well. We play anywhere, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, people's backyards, um, you know, record company execs say, can you come and play at my, yeah, no, we'll be there. It was, um, the and the record company, Warner Brothers, and Albert Grossman uh, oversaw most of that, would support us. But there again, we started selling lots of records, so they probably took a big chunk of that. Um, now, we love playing. I still do. It's like um, when you take time off, you kind of lose that edge. You know, we're playing drums, head, hands and feet. You know, you're hearing and in your in your head what what's what you're playing and what where the feel is and like the groove. And it, it all comes out. It's supposed to. And if you don't play on a regular basis, even just sitting at pads and, you know, I have pads and drums all over the house but it's it's not the same for playing in a band and i'm seriously hearing challenge now um deaf bastard comes to mind <laughs> uh, hey any of us that do that bang on stuff for a living man I, my, my hearing's not the greatest either but uh i've known a lot of drummers with hearing aids by the time they were 50 yeah. we didn't we didn't know about earplugs when we were young no you know? stupid weren't we uh, yes Turn oh yeah, let's let's hit that just a little bit harder. Hey, we love we love our work. You know, the, just the other day, we finished playing where were we? Somewhere I think in the Arkansas or something. And after we finished playing, we played for about an hour and forty five minutes. And we got back and we're in the dressing room. And I'm sharing some red wine with our singer Scott Holt, and he said he comes from uh, Tennessee. Yeah, and he says. Hey Raj, he said, "It's great." He said, "You know, how many how many jobs do you have? Like when you finished working, people start clapping and cheering." <laughs> yeah, that's and right. That's yeah, true. Like, that's the truth. You know? Exactly right. Yeah. And I, I tell you, I mean, even to this day, before we go on stage, I still get chills. I'm fine as soon as I do one, two. I'm fine, but it's like uh, I. I uh, love playing music, um, and especially the current band. Um, they're they're just great players. Nobody moans, and if they do get drunk, mm. really happy. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Nobody, you know. Occasionally, we've got to do an overnight ride, three, four, five hundred miles, or something stupid like that. They argue about who's driving. I mean, they don't sort of say, "No, I'm not doing it. I'm going to lay down." It's mm. like. I'm real, real fortunate to be at this point in my career and life to be playing in a band where everybody gives a shit. They yeah, love yeah. playing. Uh, Brian Bassett, a longtime guitar player and slide player, he's been with us 27, 26, 7 years. Um, he's also our engineer, record producer as well, mixer. He does everything. Um, he's done our last four studio albums or most of it and we've had like three or four live records coming out and so we have our own studio down in florida to land in the middle of nowhere so we can make it noise as we want speaking of that let's talk a little bit about the latest record 
uh, Sonic Mojo. Can you, I, I'm, it looks like 2023 has been a really busy year for you guys, number one. So tell us about this uh, this new record, kind of how it came together and, and whatnot. How involved yeah. are you in the actual overseeing of the artwork, considering that's your band? Um, I married Will, our yeah, manager, uh, and actually my girlfriend and, and my wife are, are terrific at doing that. Um, and my manager's really, really good too. Uh, actually, it was my manager who does most of, uh, nearly all, all the artwork and oversees it. Um, I'm called in to sort of say, do you like this? And I say yes or no. Uh, but, but basically, she does everything. And the girlfriend and the wife, like, just say the helper with everything that's going on. Um, this is working really well for me. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, sorry. They are, in fact, the Holy Trinity. They are one. <laughs> I was going to say, he keeps saying the girlfriend and the wife. I'm going, I and I yeah. hear a female voice over there. It's like, I kind of figured that out, too, but better, I wasn't yeah, going to ask. You better, yeah, you better uh, <laughs> they, they are. let us in on this. I was impressed for, for about a minute there. <laughs> so, man, you, you juggling that around? Wow. Yeah. How, did, how does she juggle all those three, um, jobs? Very well, I might add. Uh, Actually, um, Linda uh, has been our manager for 22 years. She was also uh, our office manager in the mid-70s, from 76 on. We were always really good friends. I thought, you know, 26 years ago, I'd ruined a perfectly good friendship, but it turned out to be one of the best moves I've ever made in my life. So there's also she managed uh, Rob Price when he left uh, Volcat. Uh, she's managed a number of other bands, a couple of blues artists over the years. So um, she's one of those managers that gives a shit about everything. The artist comes first there. She has, uh, you know, she does like, you know, 16, 20 hour days. Um, and is, <clears throat> I know how lucky I am. Let me put it a little bit at that. Well, you are lucky. Some bands have to watch their manager buy a, a house in in Capri and one in the Cayman Islands. Of course, if, if she does that, then you, you join her there. So that's not so bad. That's no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I, I had a vacation when the COVID nightmare hit. I uh, having you know that way I was fine with it. Um, not playing was was pretty weird, but I did a lot of fishing and the vegetables in the garden. I got to eat and beat the bunny rabbits and the deer to it. You're talking a little bit about you know. Um, management and, and involvement in the artwork and that stuff and that's clear on the on the stuff you guys have been busy on this year like even the artwork for the singles for driving on and also she's a little bit of everything the artwork on both of those is arguably that's artwork normally with the singles artwork you can kind of tell it's like maybe not as thought out that looks like album cover artwork in and of itself just for the singles so you know clearly you guys are you know attention to detail but you know, kind of tell us a little bit about how, how Sonic Mojo came together. and The um, singles, um, our manager, again, Linda, did all the artwork for that. Uh, she also uses um, uh, other artists around for, th th there's um, a competition that she en enters, like our name and stuff. And then she picks either the winners of them and then they get uh, paid for that. And then she refines it. Um yeah, Linda pays attention to detail. You know, if it, uh, the world has changed as far as making music and selling music and the way, and, and also because, you know, we're um, an older band, uh, it, it, in some ways it's a little bit more, it, it's different. But um, it's important 
for me and for this band to put out new mo music. Um, you know, that's the reason you get into music, or for me anyway, was because I love to play. I love to play in bands. I love to make and create music and be in a band. I think that's what sort of keeps me, you know, going. Um, you know, I've had all sorts of issues with hands and feet and knees and shoulders and stuff like that. But the one thing I want to do is to get back and play. I try and take care of myself. Um, I'm not as um, crazy. Is that a good word? As I used to be. You know, ah, <laughs> uh, ah, uh, impetuous. Where, where have I heard that before? <laughs> I mean, ever since I was a kid, I, I used to run uh, with, you know, stretch exercise and do stuff. But most of the time now, it's like sitting in a car, sitting in a plane, sitting in a train, sitting down, playing, getting up, sitting down, going to sleep, and getting up and sitting on a plane. So, just to say, reasonably uh, healthy. You know, I don't drink. As much as I ought to. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe as, as I used to. But uh, no, I uh, I love playing and I, I know that uh, I have to stay reasonably healthy and every hands and feet. And there's amazing stuff out there if you can afford it, um, you know, that re to restore joints and all sorts of stuff. I take, you know, various supplements. Um, I've had some blood work done, uh, you know, uh, PRP and stuff like that. And there's a, a whole bunch of new stuff out there that can help restore like muscle, tissue, joints oh, yeah. even. And um, fortunately, my, is it my girlfriend or my wife does that one? She looks <laughs> My manager has to okay it because it's not. <laughs> yes, but, right. Um, uh, no, it's, um, I, trying to stay on top of those things anytime something's getting a little strange i go linda um i've got this thing with my finger and she says well go see a go see a doctor then i go okay and i do um it works so far so good well i'm gonna <laughs> can i take you back for a second because sure. i always i always like to do this again especially when i get drummers on here i want to talk about i think i picked five songs here that weren't real big hits and many of our listeners might not be aware of them, but some, of course, yes. Um, but just stuff that I thought you played exceptionally well on. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I want to go back to, uh, I went back and listened to some some of the old Savoy Brown stuff yesterday. It's really cool, man. The, the song You Need Love from Getting to the Point album. Ah. Brain beat thing. It's like, I'm not sure that I heard that kind of a groove in that time period on a song like that before i thought that was really cool it's just like a it's almost like a bluegrass beat with drumsticks right it's got to have that it's like got the little accent Actually, a quick story about that it was the first album I did with Savoy Brown. And that song was like you do a drum solo on it's the last song of the night, bass solo, everybody's like doing stuff. Uh, so we've been rehearsing all the everything was one take on the first album. One take, that's all you get. Um, yeah, no messing around. So it comes to this song You Need Love, which is a, a drum solo in it and a bass solo. And uh I drop a drum set. <laughs> I'm like, 
I'm 20 years old. First time I'd really been in the studio. We did some stuff with the previous band I was in, my schoolmates that we had a band together. But there was, it wasn't, any, it wasn't anything like this. This is the London Decker Studios in London. Um, uh, the producer was re uh, really, really good. The engineer, Roy Baker, you heard of him, Roy Thomas. Oh, yeah. He's the engineer. So that mic around the room, the drums sound really good as well. I mean, I didn't know about, you know, miking stuff but he was um and, and mike vernon was the end was the producer um but anyway i i drop a drumstick so kim comes over to me and he says hey rog uh you don't get it right next time with the song's not going on the album pressure well, well no pressure there no pressure here. <laughs> it's, it's pretty horrible but there again it's it's uh uh you got to start somewhere right you know be gonna be brave right and, now, and was that the take that's on the record then yeah the yeah. next take the next take yeah um but uh kim simmons um we we remained friends um even after we left the band actually we reconnected in about 76 and uh you know savoy brown had been had a number of hit records um after we left and as did we so um kim and i i don't think we ever had a crossword right from the very beginning we it was like um, a mutual liking respect for each other um i was never told to do something or uh it was like the playing in all the songs was left entirely up to me and usually chris jordan or or kim would that which were basically the leaders of the band would say you know, um, nobody said, don't do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, they would sit down and play guitar or piano and I would play the drums. It was um, it was a really, really great way for me to sort of, uh, you know, become, uh, I guess, an accomplished drummer playing with that band. I was real fortunate throughout my whole, ever since I started, I always played with really good, I think, musicians great bass players, all, always really good bass players, uh, great singers, great guitar players. Um, I was never in a band that I went, and I don't do that. <laughs> and then, can you please leave the room before you upset everybody? No, it was always, I always played with real good players, people who cared, and people who gave a shit about what they were doing, and it was important to them. So I know I'm, I'm real fortunate like that. Um, uh you know never i never let drinking and the drug taking uh interfere with what i was doing time off look out I was having, <laughs> I was a good keep time. your eye on him people <laughs> uh in fact it's been a thing with the band pretty much um that's the way it should be you know yeah, yeah, the, get up there and play and and yeah it's sort of party later that's why we do it for that you know the hour and a half on stage it's um so the, the the Roy Baker, you're talking about Roy Thomas Baker. Yes. Oh, it wow. Roy, it was Roy Baker then, but it's the same person. Yeah, oh, it was way, that's like 68, wasn't it? 1968? Yeah. I knew his name, but I had no idea he did Gentle Giant and Zappa and Ginger right. Bitters Air Force. Holy fuck. Yeah. You're, you're in good company there, man. Yeah. yeah no, I know. He um, And drum sounds, he knew what to do. Yeah, even even back then on that record in 68, I was listening yeah. to it going, even that holds up. 
today. Right. Yeah, it drum, sounds good. The drum sets yeah. sound like drums. Yeah, they do. Just play them right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you played them great, man. Well, Gin, Ginger, How, must have, Ginger had two albums at least by you know, working with Roy, so obviously you shared the same taste. Yeah, um, actually, uh, the first time I met Ginger Baker, I was in, uh, it was the first band I was in. We were called The Tramps. Uh, my friend Dave Hutchins was a bass player. The lead singer and lead guitar player was, um, he became the lead singer in Mungo Jerry, Ray Dorset. We, we went to the same schools together. And um, the first band I was in, I played with Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce, and oh, what was the name of the band? Dick Hexel Smith, right? And a, a keyboard player was like the leader of the band. Anyway, we were, we were supporting them in a club around London. And, um, you know, I had to move my drums out of the way when Ginger came up and started setting his drums up. And he had the upside down cymbal that he'd trodden on or something. And I talked to him and he was real friendly. He was like, he was like, cool and like you know like i mean i'm just this like kid looking and i'd heard ginger played it seen him play before so i knew he you know the man at shops and um he was he was really cool i met him a number of times after that he was always fine with me but i know uh there was always some strange stories but um ginger was always cool with me even when he was like on a tear uh and he played stuff. The real cool thing I think about Ginger was he had he had great uh, technical ability and stuff. But nobody in a rock band ever played the way and the cuts and the stuff that he played. No, nobody played like that. Uh, he just took a whole, took it to a whole new level. What he played was like nobody played songs like that. It was like wow, yeah, he was he was an innovator. And of course, you know. Uh, bonzo uh, hands and feet that nobody ever thought about before. Uh, it was a piece of work. <laughs> well, I actually I met Ginger in 1988. He was doing a drum clinic, and a couple of interesting things. The first thing they wanted me to go up. I was like the session guy around town. I wasn't with John Mellencamp yet, but everybody knew who I was. And they said, "We well, just go up and get. We want to make sure the microphones are working." So he's got this Ludwig kit, and all the toms are flat like you'd seen him in the sixties, the symbols are flat and they're real old. So I'm up playing and I'm going, man, these, these K, I mean, to hit the ride symbol, it just sounded beautiful. And the symbols are beautiful. I go over and hit the hi-hat and I go, you gotta be shitting me. And it's like, I know I've heard that sound. It sounds just like crossroads on wheels of fire. So I go backstage and meet him and He's got a mixed drink in one hand and he's got a briar pipe in the other. And he puts the pipe in his mouth and he goes, hi, Dane, and grabs my hand. And he'd been working on an olive farm for about a year. And I thought oh. I was going to break my wrist. Hi, Ginger. <laughs> nice to meet you. Let go of my hand. <laughs> and, and I asked him, I said, so those symbols that you've got, tell me, he goes, those are the ones I used in cream. And I knew it when I hit that hi-hat because I'd heard that. I could tell. Because probably only had one mic over the drums back then, or two, or something. But it was just overhead. That, overhead. Was, that was my yeah. run in with Ginger. Yeah, drums are uh, an acoustic instrument. I mean, it's uh, they always sound best in a, like a big wooden room or something. You know, with placing mics around. If you if you know how to tune them or tune them to how you want to hear them, uh, Ginger was um, something else. I I I admired him a lot. He was yes, he was crazy, but. Um, 
he uh, he rewrote the book on how to play drums in a rock and roll band. I think. sure did. I think so too. And you know, interestingly enough, he went on to play DW drums, as do you, as do I. So there you go, John. Oh, Good the shout out uh, to you, right? Uh, yeah. No. DW drums are the best. Yep. And um, I played Ludwig forever. But as soon as, and I'm still good friends with Bill. Once he left the company, um, and I remember like, because sometimes their stands would, uh, Lud- I'm talking about Ludwig stands. Oh, kind they of. didn't really hold yeah. up. They would break and, you know, it was like a soft sort of metal. And I remember calling them up um, and trying to get parts, you know, because I'm, I'm on the road all the time and drums, uh, especially the cymbal stands. So they wouldn't, they kept breaking and they never took care of me. So uh, I'd played a Ludwig. Sorry, I played DW drums up in Boston. I was working up there for a while with a band called the New England Jam Band. And I sat down in a music store and played. And I went, wow. There was just like, you know, sitting down at a drum kit in a music store, normally you're just making noise, I think. I sat down at this kit and went, wow. It was like, duh, 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 duh. you know, and the bass drummer said, wow, these drums sound great. And um, I talked. I called John Good up, and we talked. And uh, I went to the factory, and he showed me all around the factory, which is, you probably yeah, been. I've, I've been there. Oh, it's fa- fantastic. Yeah, it's a treat, isn't it? They have. Uh, I mean, they're all handmade, and like you can get a, like if you want a drum with specific notes, you know, the timbre of a drum, um, you can do it. Uh, I'm not that finicky about that. I, I have an idea how I want my drums to sound, but um, it, it was so impressive. I mean, it was like all hands on, and like everybody cared about every the tiniest detail on these on these drums and the pedals. Wow, you know, uh, what did, like uh, what did I call them? Ferraris for the feet. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, they're they're, they're great, man. Uh, yeah. Um, and they take care of you, right? Yeah, they they do. They're yes. a, a fantastic company. The people that run it, the people who work there as well. It's um, yeah, I'm proud to sort of be uh, a part of uh, the the DW family, and I and they treat you like that too. Yes, as am I. Yeah, Terraplane Blues, the old Robert Johnson tune. Man, that arrangement, and I'd heard that because I had the fool for the city record, but I hadn't heard it in a long time. Man, you guys took a minute on that. You got those three, four bars in there on that yeah. one verse. Right, right. Everything's a little bit extended, but a little bit different each verse. Right. And the groove that you're playing, just nice, slow rock groove. That So explain, I mean, how, how did that arrangement come about? Uh, Dave came up with the idea of doing that song. Nick Jameson, our bass player and producer at the time, I, I, I was um, we, we we recorded it a, a, a room up in Sharon, Vermont, um, Sun Treader Studios, a huge wooden room which Nick and I actually found before we decided to record there. But it was all about the drum sound in the room, and that and then that that song. We use room mics as well. Uh, there were other songs we we tightened it up a little bit and moved the mics in a bit. But it was, uh, if you recall, like the bass drum, like you know, thunder. Boom, it's moving know. some air. Yes. Yeah, yeah, lots of air to move. Um, yeah, uh, it was Nick's. It was Nick's idea, um, and I just started playing 
with the, with the bass initially when we were working on the arrangement of the song and nick would say that's it you know like keep it like just it's sort of it's very open but it's got a it's got a certain a certain sort of uh the real the, i think the real reason it really sounds so good is because though the drums sound really good on the tune and then you know so long as i don't overplay anything keep everything nice and open um it works yeah it's um i was really pleased with it with the way that record turned out yeah it turned out great man thank you on stone blue the sweet home chicago i mean it's the song we all know and most of us have played but the groove that you play that just goes back to show that you know shuffle drumming you know which came from chicago originally really like everybody's gone back and but man nice job on that so when you play your shuffle i'll just ask you because listening i wasn't sure or do you do both hands doing the same groove okay that's what i do on that one uh i do uh but when i'm playing it live i i sometimes change it around you know sometimes i just put play the backbeat or uh i let the shuffle come in my left hand light and then hit, hit the backbeat but on that it was like yeah da, 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 like da, earl palmer like da, earl da, palmer da. would play yes excellent that's what that's what i thought i was hearing and that's what I reacted to because there's nothing that feels any better than that when you're playing no, blues. It's, it's really it's, it's, nice track. It, and it's thank you. It's fun. It was a little bit at the time I thought it was a bit fast, but everybody in the band said, No, Roger, it's great. So it was it was rather I think it was probably only the second time we actually played it. And I and I said, No, it's a little bit fast. And Dave said, No, Roger, it's great. You know, we'll keep that. Go. <laughs> Go fishing. We we've got our track now. We, we got the drum track. Get <laughs> yeah, out of here. <laughs> That's awesome. That's it's a good it's a good take. How about Easy Money from Stone Blue? Now that one, you get to do some double bass stuff. There's some tricky, odd phrasing in there. I had to go back and listen a couple times. It's really just a two four. Know bar. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you did. So, um, wow, that must have taken a minute to get that together. Easy Money was. Uh... It was, it was myself and the bass player um, worked on that. We sat. Uh, we were real. We were real. We were good friends. We were like brothers, like brothers sometimes do. They we knock heads and didn't always see things eye to eye. But he was my brother in the truest sense of like we would lock up stuff. And that was one song where we sat down and worked out parts. And especially mm. when you're playing bass drum, double bass drums, you got to like. You have to get it right. You can't like be sloppy or anything because then it doesn't work. And um, we went over it a number of times. Um, once we, did, you know, we figured out how to play it. Then we did the arrangement for the song with the band, and I think that's how that happened. There was also another song on that record that I thought was really uh, special. Um, uh, what was that? Uh, mm, I can't remember. Yeah, that's playing. Um, uh who's the other one um what's the other song that brian wants to do linda from uh midnight yeah midnight madness that was okay song on there that the bass player and i like went okay and that took a little while because he's got, he's got the 16th note thing on the oh back. that's right uh, yeah yeah that's yeah. Gonna be a little tricky especially if the guitars um again myself and the bass player i think were really tight but sometimes if the guitars weren't really tight with us, that that was um getting that one right was was work. Um we spent quite a lot of time on that song. 
Um, but hey, you get it. You get it in the end. You know, if the song's worthwhile, you get it done. Right, and that's the. I mean, it shows that you guys took some time because they, they these songs really stood out to me. Thank you. The uh, there's another one. Take this heart of mine from In the Mood for Something Rude. It's a really funky beat that you play on that. Oh, it's right. almost it's like prog rock almost. There's some real cool. There's some cool playing on that. How about that song? Um, right, there's like a triplet on the bass drum. Is there or something? Yeah, there's some of that. But there's some like offbeat. It's almost like James Brown ish type right. of a drum beat well, a bit he had two drummers exactly he was greedy. <laughs> good man <laughs> it's like a lot of great bands the Allman brothers had two drummers uh actually i love playing with other drummers a few times i've had a chance to do it it's fun um i remember that song um when when we we rehearsed it with with the band we had a studio here in uh port jefferson uh boogie motel boogie hotel and uh it was i forget who did the original version but um nick jameson was producing it. I'm not, i can't remember if he played bass on it but i i worked out the drum parts david lonesome dave and i were like sat in there and like so i got the arrangement to the song and um it was just one take and i re remember this because nick jameson was producing it and he said now that's great roger and i was pleased like with the way i played it um, you know, it was, I was relaxed and, but everything was like was working. And our manager at the time said, well, do it again. And Nick, one of the people love, said, why would he want to do that? It's great. We want to go on, move on now. We, we've got it. We've got the track. And our, our manager at the time said, he couldn't believe that it was like one take and everything was fine. But, you know, but that was the beauty of working with somebody like Nick Jameson. He had great ears and, and that technically he could play anything. And when he heard something that he liked and was working for the song, which is what it's all about, as far as I'm concerned, uh, he said, yeah. And Nick said, no, it's great. We got a we got the track. You know, let's do the rest of it and make this song. Uh, thank you. For how, many, how many bands collectively say, oh, we can get it better and do 12 takes only to come back to the first Come take. back to the first one and go, yeah. well, yeah. they, uh, Rod Argent said they did that with uh, Hold Your Head Up. Oh, okay. really? They recorded 30 takes, mm -hmm. and then they went back the next day, and the first take was the one that they used. Okay, I got a, I got a story. We're doing uh, the Energized album, and our uh, producer was a guy called Tom Dawes, brilliant musician, uh, did a uh, great uh, pr uh, producer and engineer. Um, he used to do most a lot of jingles. He, had, he was in a band called the circle red rubber ball like back in oh the... i remember that anyway but a brilliant musician anyway it was our manager who recommended him to us and we got on really well with him and uh i remember one evening we were in the city where we tom Dawes, our producer invited myself and dave up to his apartment nice apartment and he said to me you ever had uh russian vodka and i said no he pulled a, one out of the freezer and i took it dave was Far too fine a person to ever drink Russian vodka like me. <laughs> I had a couple, and we just started talking about music, and basically it came to like R and B and music and drummers. That Lonesome Dave was a closet drummer. He he knew all the drummers on every record that had ever been made, or he cared about. And we started talking about Aretha Franklin and Bernard Purdy. Mm. And uh, 
And Tom says, yeah, I use Bernard uh, all the time, every time I can on the, all the records. And Dave and I looked at each other and said, can he play on our record? <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Dye said, yes, as long as you pay him. So we had, I think it was two, maybe three songs uh, that we'd been working on and had all the arrangements, we just hadn't recorded them yet. We'd rehearsed them. Whenever it was, we went back into the studio. Tom called Bernard and uh, he came down to the studio. We had the band, it was in Manhattan, big studio, big room. And the band was facing us in a semicircle, amps and the singer looking at myself and Bernard was sitting side by side. Now I'm I'm in the presence of of like what as far as I was concerned, one of the greatest drummers of all time. The the way he played, what he played, and who he played with was like I mean yeah, that, man. It, I was in the presence of greatness. So Bernardza, they they had a, a drum kit brought in for him. He brought his own pedals and hi-hat as far as I remember so he's I you know I didn't you know I helped put the when they dropped drop the drum kit off I helped put things together and I like put legs on the floor toms and stuff like that just so he had something to work with and uh and I'm sitting on my drums just you know trying not to be noisy and just you know be cool you know and uh <laughs> Bernard's gets his stuff working and he's he's doing some stuff and Tom Tom's a real noisy, loud. And um, Tom Dawes comes out and puts a wallet on his snare drum. And Bernard looks at me and says, what are you doing? And Tom Dawes says, well, it's ringing. <laughs> Bernard Purdy turns around to him and says, drums are meant to ring. <laughs> I think they ended up with a bit of tape instead of a wallet. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Bernard's sitting there and he does a few things. And I go, you know, it's, it's magic. The way he plays, his hands are like, uh, and he's always smiling. He's got this beautiful, like, smile and these beautiful big eyes. And he looks, he turns around and looks at me. And, uh, you know, I didn't know whether to shake his hand. I can't even remember if I touched him. But, uh, and Tom brings out the, the charts for the three songs. I mean, I already knew them. So he's, he's, and he looks at me and he says, okay, he said, we'll do it once to get the arrangement right. And I'm nodding. I go, yeah. And he said, then we'll do it a second time get the song right and then we'll play it a third time to have fun with it and i've got to tell you that stayed with me forever if wow you're in the studio you've got to do a song more than three times start rehearsing it go some go on to something else yeah and uh uh you know you have to, you either have to be prepared or maybe some of us are fucking geniuses and can do it anyway but <laughs> i'm a mere mortal but uh that was one of the highlights, uh, sitting down there and playing three songs with Bernard Purdy. So are those on the on the record? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, one of the songs with Nothing I Won't Do is on the uh, Energized album. There was another one. I can't remember what it was. And another song that we did went on a later album. Can't remember what that was. If I had, if I pulled the albums out, I could figure it out. But there's two drummers, so you can hear us. Okay, you can hear the two. Okay, that's yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great. It, it was, yeah, that was that was one of the highlights of my life. So within an hour, you guys were done with three songs. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, sooner. I think. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that third song, that third song was another visitation by Bernard. It was just delayed to another album. Yeah, uh, one of the songs went on a later album, but uh, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'll I could pull it if I pulled the records out. I could recognize it, but 
we've made 17 albums that alone a lot. dozens of uh live stuff we put out so uh yeah that that was great uh, uh he's absolutely beautiful man too really cool and just lets everybody relaxes around him it's like you know it's fun he makes Ooh. playing with him fun it, it's uh yeah highlight I'll bet. I'll bet. You guys have any other questions for Roger before we let him have his life back? Do you fish in lakes or do you fish in the ocean? What's your preference? Both. Um, I go. I started fishing when I was about five or six. My dad took me to the River Thames. We always lived in rivers. Uh, I both. You know, I, I fly fish. I sit in the boat with a bottle of wine and put a chunk of herring on the end and sit there. Um, I spin. I. It's like. I walk the beach, I walk rivers, I sit on the dock and just dangle something. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't really matter if I've got any bait on, but it's, you, it's like have, it's, just, it's like being there. Um, have, I find, you, have you fished in Canada? Uh, yes, I fished in Canada. Yeah. I've been fished everywhere, man. I've yeah. fished everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, the only trouble these days is that uh, April, beginning of May, we get these big stripers, or stripers bass coming into the yeah. harbour, live on the harbour. And uh, I put them all back, all three, landing yeah. trip anyway. And I put them back. I made excuses that I had to go and see a doctor and I didn't want to smell like a fish, like filleting it and doing all that stuff. But I think I'm becoming a softy. They've got these big, beautiful brown eyes. Uh, and, and especially the big, they're big, the big ones are all grandmothers, and it's like I don't know. I think I'm becoming soft in my old age. I'll, <laughs> don't worry. I'll I'll fillet a fish before I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> but that life is good. Thank you guys. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you lot. You too. It's great you to too, meet. Roger. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.